Welcome to another episode of the Karas on Crime podcast series. I'm your host, Beth Karas. A KOC member suggested I reach out to today's guest, thinking he'd be a great interview, so I did, and he will be. Ben Levitan is an electrical engineer who has worked with cell phones for 30 years, probably since they were invented. He's one of the nation's experts, if not the expert, in cell phones. He has trained FBI agents, testified numerous times in courts, written books, and more. For 12 years, he was the U.S. representative on a U.N. committee about telephones, which I definitely want to talk about. In any event, we all use cell phones, so I promise that what Ben has to say will be educational, enlightening, entertaining, everything an interesting interview should be. So welcome, Ben. Thank you. Welcome. So, you've got this... It's ex- good to be here today. Yes, thank you very much. You've got this expertise in cell phones. So, like, what do you know that the rest of us don't? We all use cell phones. What are they? How do they work? Well, that's quite an, uh, that was quite a uh, introduction. I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> you can. You, but, you uh, already did. <laughs> Uh, especially a part about being witty and intelligent. Uh, basically, yeah, people are very interested in cell phones. <laughs> These things have just taken over our lives, haven't they? Yes, they but, have. Uh, so when you testify at a very, trial, they must like they must love you because you're telling people stuff. I guess that they don't know. Yeah, this is really simple. A cell phone is really, really easy. You know, what I always tell a jury when I get up in front of a jury is to understand telephones, you have to understand uh, how phones work. It's it's very simple. You remember when you were a kid, or maybe you did this with your kids, you had got two tin cans, and you tied a string between them, and you talked between this, and you could talk to each other. That was your first telephone, probably, right? Your first right. telephone experience. That's right. That's right. I well, did that. Yes. Guess what? Things haven't changed in 106 years. Not much has changed. You know, when you talk into a cell phone, you're vibrating a little piece of tin, and it it carries your voice over a string, which is now a wireless string. This same thing as you did as a kid. It really is not much different. So the only thing a cell phone does is you talk into uh, you're talking into instrument. It, it vibrates a little piece of tin and it carries your voice to the other end. And then when someone talks to you, you know you're listening to uh, a tin can in your ear vibrating. So but there's no string. Changes. But there's no string. There's no string. That's the magic. So over the years, we went from that tin can to uh, a wire, because that's what Alexander Graham Bell invented. He figured out that uh, uh, that you could carry people's voice on a uh, wire, and then you know, in the 70s, we figured out we could carry people's voices on uh, fiber optic, and today we're carrying people's voices on a radio link. That's all it is. When you're talking to an, into uh, a cell phone, you're a little uh, radio station. You're broadcasting to a cell tower, and then that cell tower carries your voice to the other end. When you're listening to someone on your cell phone, it's just like holding an AM radio up to your ear. And and for the time that you're talking to someone, you're broadcasting on your own private station, and you're listening on your own private station. That's all a cell phone is. It's pretty simple. Well, you say we're broadcasting on our own private station, but seems like someone could figure out how to listen. Well, that's what we've been fighting for years and years. And, and that's true. Back in the early days, we actually, cell phones actually worked on the AM radio band. And you could actually tune your AM radio and listen in on people's cell phone calls. Wow. So it, re- it really is radio technology. So, so when you see, so what we've done is we put up cell towers all over the world. And when you're standing near a cell tower and you want to make a phone call, you simply get a radio connection to that cell tower, and off you go. But, of course, we've done all sorts of crazy encryption and things like that nowadays so that your conversations are very, very private. So... When you testify at trials, you're talking about how to use cell phones, and but you're talking about cell towers, right? And that, that's what yeah. is, when we talked off air last week, I found it fascinating to, or earlier this week, whenever it was, I found it fascinating to uh, hear you talk about cell towers, because I had a fundamental misunderstanding about cell towers. So what are they, and why do we need them? Okay, well, let's let's back up a little bit here. Like I said, 
when you're talking on a cell phone, what we have, what a cell phone, what a cell tower is, it's your link to the phone network. It's your string. Okay, so, and it's radio communications. Hey, you re, a cell tower is just like a radio station. You've had this experience. You're uh, you're taking off on a family vacation and you're listening to the family radio. Say you're driving, you know, you're you're driving out of Maryland and you're going to head to Florida or something like that. And you're listening to your favorite Maryland radio station. As you drive away, all of a sudden that radio station kind of fades away and fades away. And all of a sudden you lose it. You've gone out of the coverage area of that radio station. That's the same thing. That's how a cell tower works. Every cell tower, we put up cell towers all over the country, all over the world. And each cell tower covers a small geographic area of of your world out there. So in your city, there could be two dozen cell towers, and each of those cell towers is a little radio station. And wherever you're standing, that cell tower is providing coverage to you and everybody around you. Okay, so... Are there cell towers for every cell phone carrier? The Sprint, AT&T, Verizon, they have their own towers? Everyone has their own towers. Well, let's, yes. Technically, everybody has their own cell towers, but they do share cell towers, you know, the actual physical structure. If you ever, if you look up at these tall towers, what you'll see is like a triangle shape up on top, and it has uh, equipment on it, and those are cell towers. And you may see three or four sets of those. You may see one for AT&T, one for Sprint, one for Verizon. But uh, the basis, so the basics of, of the cell phone network is we put out cell towers all over the country. They each cover a couple of miles, and they're all next to each other. So wherever you are in the country, you've got continuous cell phone coverage. So Pretty what, straightforward. What happens when you you hit a dead zone? Because sometimes you know you're on the phone, you say, "Oh, I know, coming up, it's going to be this dead zone. I'm going the call is going to drop." What happened? Well, then you call up the cell phone company and complain. So this is this is a pretty interesting exercise that we do as cell phone companies. We're, uh, in the cell phone business, we're fairly cheap. You know, if we could, we would put one cell tower up in the middle of Kansas, and that cell tower would cover the entire world or in the entire country. But that's not really possible because of technical reasons. A cell tower can only handle so many phone calls at the same time. So what we have to do is we have to put up multiple cell towers. Instead of having one cell tower that covers the, the whole country, you've got to put up uh, hundreds and hundreds of cell towers. And remember, this is kind of like the game you play at the fair where you have to cover an area with a bunch of circles. Mm-hmm. Okay, so cell tower, each cell tower covers a circular area. Okay, so once someone drives out of that cell tower, that one cell tower, you would technically lose your phone service. So what you have to do is you have to, you have to put another cell tower next to that one and another cell tower next to that one. So what you're trying to do is cover an entire city with these circles of cell phone coverage. And, of course, there's going to be little gaps here and there. That does happen. So those are the dead zones. So when you say it's, and a, those are the dead it's a circle around the cell tower, so it's a, it's a two-mile radius out from the cell tower, right? You just Exactly. That's, that's typical. That's very typical that a cell tower in most cities is going to go out for about two miles. When you get about two miles away from that cell tower, if there's not another cell tower right there, you're going to lose coverage. You're going to drop your call. You're going to hit that dead zone. So, uh, and believe me, the cell phone companies are out there every day adjusting these cell towers to try to make it perfect. That's what they do all day. They're out there adjusting cell towers so that there are no dead spots. And, uh, and the, the, the people who own the property that they put their cell towers on, they're getting paid? Oh, yes. <laughs> That's another uh, business entirely. Um, in order to have cell phone service, obviously we have to have cell towers all over the country, and that means we need places to put cell towers. Now, generally, people don't like cell towers because they're ugly and they reduce property value and and uh, who knows, you know, people believe that the radiation might cause problems. There's all sorts of problems with having a cell tower. So what cell phone companies do is they will pay people 
to put cell phone uh, cell phone tower up on their property, especially if you're in an area where they need cell phone coverage. Uh, for example, if you're near a large intersection of two interstates, there's always a need for uh, cell tower service there. So the cell phone companies are happy to provide you a cell tower, uh, would be happy to pay you if you'll put a cell tower up on their property, on your property, and allow you to... Uh, let them in to put up equipment and check on that. So this is a very big business. A person can expect to earn about $4,000 a month for allowing the cell phone company to come onto their property and put on a cell phone. Wow. Up a cell See, that was my next question. What kind of money are we talking? So it's not like a one-time fee of a $10,000 easement or something, It's that, which is like the telephone company used to get easements to lay cable or to have, I don't know, they're kind of towers on people's property. But they pay a lump sum, I think, for a long term. But you're saying that they, they, they'll pay monthly. That's a lot of money. Yes, it's a very it is a very big part of the business. Well, the biggest reason that people don't have good cell phone coverage is because there are not enough cell towers. The reason there are not enough a lot of cell towers is we don't have places to put those cell towers, and and that is the big. Uh, that's the big problem why you don't have great service. Now, in the, obviously, you know, municipal, you have to get permission to put up a cell tower. There's all sorts of regulations. You can't be close to an airport. Uh, you know, you've got to, you know, in some places you have, um, uh, ordinances against something like a cell tower. For example, if you look at New Hampshire, New Hampshire basically bans structures that are cell towers. You cannot put up a cell tower in the middle of New Hampshire. It's a beautiful state. Do you want to really see a big, ugly steel cell tower in the middle of your town? No. So what they've done in New Hampshire is really interesting. The cell phone companies have gone to churches in New Hampshire, and they've gone to the church and said, look, you know, that looks like a pretty old steeple you have up there in the pastor would say, yeah, we've been meaning to replace it. Well, how about, you know, the cell phone companies say, well, how about if we put up a new steeple for you? Well, what's the catch? Well, we'd like to put a cell tower inside that steeple. And so if you allow us, we will put up a new steeple. We're going to put a cell tower inside that steeple. And all we need is a little room in the back of your church where we can put some equipment. And if you would do that, We'll take care of everything, and on top of that, we'll pay you three, four thousand dollars a month for having that cell tower in your steeple. So that's how you get cell phone services in places like New Jersey. Uh, for example, another example is in the beaches of Delaware. People who have beautiful beach houses in Delaware do not want cell towers on the beach. So you may find some big palm trees <laughs> on the Delaware beach. And look at that palm tree and go, that's kind of odd. I didn't think that would grow here. No, it's a fake It's a fake palm tree put up by a, a cell phone company, and it has a cell tower inside it. And you'll see that also in Arizona. If you're driving down major highways in Arizona, you'll see some odd-looking cactus out there. And you go, well, oh, I wonder what's with that cell, what that cactus. Well, it's not a cactus. It's a cell tower. That's fascinating. I love this story. Who knew? Um, the right. churches, that's great. That's a win-win for the church. They get the money and, and the community gets their cell service. That's right. I've had, I had a judge chase me down after a trial. And I said, you know, I don't usually get a judge chasing you down after you testify. I go, oh my God, what did I do wrong? And she pulls me aside. She goes, Mr. Levitin, I got a problem. I go, oh shoot, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? She goes, I own a beach house in, uh, in Delaware. And, the city council wants to approve a cell tower right in the middle of our property. It would look, you know, and she's just like, it would be terrible for our property values. It really is. It would be terrible for our property values. So I told her, well, why don't you have them put up a palm tree with the cell tower inside the palm tree? She was so excited because, you know, you can't have it both ways. You either have to have a cell tower uh and to get phone service, or if you don't have the cell tower, you don't have service. You need to have them. So did they put up the palm tree? Is that where that story comes yeah. from? I think that's what they did. That's, that's where that, that, 
It is. Well, you but, know, uh, you know, but a, a lot ahead. of people, Ben, are um, getting rid of their landlines and only using cell phones. You and I are talking on a landline. I don't do these podcasts on cell phones. I, in fact, I have to have an analog landline to do a podcast from home uh, for broadcast quality. Do you recommend that people get rid of their landlines? Well, uh, I can't recommend. You know, I've been in the phone business for 35 years. I love all sorts of phone systems. No, uh, but what we did, the reason we have cell phones today is because if you remember back in 1984, there was only one cell phone, or there was only one telephone company. It was a monopoly. Right. Um, and what's happened since then, the thing that, you know, the FCC, their job is to look out uh, for consumers and to make sure that there's fair competition in business, and they do a really good job of that most of the time. Um, back uh, back in 84, a judge declared AT&T could no longer be a monopoly in the self, in the telephone business. And they said, anybody who wants to get into the telephone business, go ahead. You can get into the telephone business. But that failed. Nobody would. Nobody wanted to change their phone providers because back then, if you changed your, if you had a phone number for 30 years and you went to a new phone company, you had to get a new phone number. Nobody wanted to do that. Right. And the FCC recognized that, and they invented, and we as engineers implemented something called local number portability, where now you own your phone number. So you totally own your phone number. If you want to change from a cell phone to a landline, you can take your number with you. Landlines are fantastic for voice quality. One of my big, big pet peeves about cell phones is we, you know, we're doing a lot of things with data and internet, uh, and we've been kind of slow on offering better and better voice quality. The voice quality is getting really good, and there's some new what we call HD voice that's going to make it really good. But in the meantime, uh, you know, landlines have their purpose, and so it depends what you do. It's always nice to have a landline, but it's also, uh, you know, I, I don't, it's like children. The tel- telephone systems are like my children. I don't, I don't have a favorite. <laughs> right. Fair enough. But, you know, you can make phone calls, well, phone quote-unquote calls, through Skype now, because sometimes I do an audio-only Skype call through WhatsApp. I mean, and these aren't going through phone lines, though, right? Or are they? No. Yes, they are. Oh. Remember, now you've heard the term LTE. That seems to be a popular term, uh, and probably nobody knows what it means. Uh, when I've been working in the design of telephone systems for thirty more than 30 years now, and we always had a long-term evolution, we called it. LTE means long-term evolution. Our long-term vision is that we have one telephone network, it, and no matter whether you're using a cell phone or you're using a landline or you're using, uh, like you said, your Internet to make phone calls, that's called voice over IP, they all go over the same telephone network. Back, there was a time where you had to have one telephone network for landlines, you had to have one telephone network for cell phones, and you had to have a different type of um, telephone network for different types of cell phone. All that has gone away, and today pretty much everybody is using the same worldwide telephone network. And so that's why, you know, and, and this is what I've done for so many years. We have set, you know, the telephone business is different than any other business because you have to work with your competitors. You know, if if you are, uh, if you have a Verizon phone and you want to call someone who's, uh, you know, got a Sprint phone, Verizon and Sprint have to work together. Right. So what we've done over the years is we've developed technical standards. We've made agreements on how the telephone network should work, and we all sit down and negotiate this constantly well, who, as who, new who, features You say out. we. Who, who, you as an engineer, were you working for a company doing that or the government? Who are you? Who's we? Well, a little bit of all. Now, I've always worked for a specific, uh, telephone company. I've worked for Verizon, Sprint, GTE, but... There is actually a United Nations committee uh, dedicated to 
telephones. You know the UN has a committee for weather, world weather. They have a committee for world health. The Actually, the oldest committee on the UN is called the International Telecommunication Union. It is a committee that uh, assures that there's worldwide consistent telephone communications. And I did, uh, as you mentioned in my intro, um, I was a U.S. representative, a U.S. delegate to this committee for 12 years. So what I did is I work with the State Department and I work with private industry, and we would represent the U.S. positions around the world. I'll give you one good example. You know, in um, in the U.S., 800 numbers are extremely popular. Everybody loves 800 numbers. Right. Well, but an 800 number can only work in the United States. Uh, so, you know, a lot of U.S. companies, as they started expanding globally, started to say, wouldn't it be great if we could use 800 numbers worldwide? So we brought that to the U.N. committee and said, hey, we would like to create a worldwide 800 number service, and we all work together to create that. So now what we've done, what we did in the past couple of years is develop uh, you can now get a 800 number that will work worldwide. So if you're in Bangladesh, you can pick up the phone and dial 888-whatever and connect to someone, uh, you know, connect to that company. Amazing. Uh, because I know on the back well, of credit cards, insurance cards, whatever, they'll say, you know, domestically dial this number, internationally dial, dial that number. Now you're saying that soon enough it'll be just like one number? You can have just one number. You got to understand that, you know, uh, the reason that the UN is involved is every country has their own telephone systems and their own telephone regulations, but we still all have to work together. So my job was to sit on this UN committee and represent the U.S. interest, uh, in telephone communications. So we would design things. So the the reason you can dial, if, if you have relatives in foreign countries or your kids are in foreign countries, you're probably amazed that you can direct dial them nowadays. Right. It's and so the much reason easier, is right? That, yeah. The reason you can do that is because we all sat down as an industry worldwide and came up with, uh, under the auspices of the UN, and came up with uh, ways to do this, technical ways to do this. So and it's, it's when did you stop doing that? When did you leave the UN? I still continue to do the. Oh. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I still, you know, well, I, I did that. Uh, I, I don't directly represent the U.S. anymore on these committees, but I continue to do the work that eventually gets fed to the UN. And, and is uh, it through the FCC though? Like who? When you're saying you're representing U.S. interests, I guess it has to come through the FCC, right? No, it comes. The FCC is more or less a, I guess you would call them a watchdog, a consumer watchdog, a oh. business watchdog. So the 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 it's it's a very fair process. All the phone companies within the U.S. get together and decide what's in the best interest of the United States as far as phones are concerned, telephone system, and then we go together, to, and it's under the auspices of the State Department. So the State Department actually forms delegations that send people to these meetings uh, to represent the U.S. against, with and against other countries. So, I mean, you, you never. It is here's 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 a one very simple example. We all know when you look at your keypad, you know there's letters on the keypads. You know, and if, right. uh, a lot of us, you know. A lot of us use our kids' names as passwords on those on those keypads. Well, all of a sudden, what we realized back in 1980s, in the 1980s, was every country has those letters on different keys. Mm. Like in Australia, the Q and the Z are on the one. In the United States, we didn't even have a Q and a Z on our keypads. And all of a sudden... Uh, you know, it, you may not know it, but a ATM machine where you get cash out of your ATM, that's actually a telephone system. And so people were going to foreign countries and trying to get money out of ATMs machines, and they kept getting a message that their PIN code was wrong because they were pushing letters 
that were not in the same place in the United States as they were in Italy, as they were in Australia. So this is a really simple example, but the UN, uh, so a project came into the United Nations Committee that says we have to decide formally where letters go on keypads on phones, and I actually chaired that committee, which is why I remember it. And there was a tremendous argument that Australia insisted that the Q and the Z have to go on the one because their their best customer was Kwanzaa, and you wanted to be able to push one. Their advertising was push one for Kwanzaa <laughs> or Kwanzaa. Did they win? So we no. So now the now we have decided that the, the keypad, as you see it today, is is standardized worldwide, where the Q is on the seven and the Z is on the nine. Okay. So, which is the way it was in the United States, right? Well, in the United States, we didn't, we didn't even have, have a Q and Z, right, but, but they follow like later so, in the alphabet, so they're later numbers. Yeah, so we made a compromise, and uh, so that's that's how this UN committee works. But that's sort of interesting. So, when you're testifying at a trial, at a criminal trial, do you testify for the prosecution or defense or both? Generally, I end up uh, testifying for defense attorneys. I, as you have to understand, experts are objective people at a trial. You understand that the prosecutor's job is there to convict someone. That's their job. And the defense attorney's job is to make sure that their client is acquitted. That's their job. And, and it's an adversarial system, like I've heard you say on this podcast. This is an adversarial system. Mm -hmm. uh, a expert's job is not to take sides with either side. I'm hired by defense attorneys generally. Uh, I'm rarely hired by uh, prosecutors because prosecutors have their own FBI resources. They have their own state labs that act as experts for them. So generally, the people who are going to hire me are defense attorneys when cell phone evidence come in. So, and my job is to be accurate, yeah. You're right. So, okay, fair enough. So that's an explanation for why you're uh, primarily hired by the defense. You're right. Prosecutors are going to go to the resources they have available, like the, the police departments will probably say, well, wait, we've got our own, you know, cell phone, computer experts, whatever. And uh, right. what are you going outside and spending those taxpayers' money? for a high-paying expert like Ben Levitan, right? So what do you find when you are well, – uh, tell me about some of the, the experts at the state calls. I mean, are, are there a lot of people like you around the country? Because I suspect not. There are very few people, and mostly because uh, engineers, we're not very social people. <laughs> we're not really good at talking in front of a crowd. And so there are a lot of people who are really brilliant in cell phone technology, but not a lot of who would be willing to do what I do is, uh, you know, act as an expert in criminal cases. Uh, so there are very few people. Unfortunately, what we have is a lot of people who are amateur experts. And I have to, you know, I have to point to uh, a lot of the prosecution experts are people who are interested in cell phones, have theories about how cell phones work. But they don't really have the background or the education or the industry experience to actually know what they're talking about. Can you give but an the example? Fact is, okay, sorry. Oh, you know, this is, let's, I could give dozens of examples here. Well, let me give you a very good example. This is very typical. Um, uh, when, say, the police suspect that uh, a person was at, uh, at a scene of a crime. They have a suspect. They believe he was at the scene of the crime at 6 o'clock on a Friday night where a murder occurred in, let's say, downtown Denver. Okay, so they go to the phone company and say, we have this suspect. We would like his phone records. And the police will be given by subpoena. The phone company will turn over the cell phone records of uh, that suspect. As it turns out, uh, what the phone records will show you is is a little bit of what you see on your phone bill, but very technical. It'll tell you the date of the call, the time of the call. It'll say who called who. It'll say what kind of service was it. Was it a voice call? Was it a text message? Was it going in? Was it going out? And then the next column will say, this is the cell tower that was used to make this phone call. 
And the duration, so that, the duration of the call. And the dura- of course, the duration of the call, and then a lot of other really boring technical stuff. Okay. But police have learned, police and FBI and investigators have learned to go get the phone records. So what they'll do is they'll go get the suspect's phone records, they'll go down to 6 o'clock, and they'll go, oh, well, look at this. At 6 o'clock, a phone call was made using a cell tower that was in downtown Denver. Uh, therefore, this guy was at the scene of the crime. Therefore, we're going to bring that in as evidence and have him convicted. And I can't tell you how many people are arrested every day based on that fact. You made a phone call that connected you to a cell tower that was near the scene of the crime. It seems like pretty good evidence, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Okay. That's the first mistake. Like I said, uh, in this country, typically a cell tower is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, cover an area that's about two square miles. When you make a phone call, whenever you make a phone call or receive a phone call or send a text, the phone company records your, first off, when you turn on your phone and you make that call, your phone always connects to the closest cell tower. It's always going to connect you to the closest cell tower, unless you're in a dead zone, then you've got a problem. But assuming you've got cell phone coverage, you're going to get close, connected to the closest cell tower, and then the phone company is going to record that. It's going to say, you know, Ben made a phone call at 6 p.m. using a cell tower uh, located at 155 uh, you know, uh, 7th Street in downtown Denver. Well, that's the cell tower to which I was connected, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, if there happens to be what the police for what the police go in and the FBI does this constantly, what they do is they go into court and they say, if you were at the crime scene, your cell phone would connect up to this cell tower on 12th Street. So, therefore... Uh, this person was at the scene of the crime. It's exactly the wrong information. A cell tower, like I said, if a cell tower goes out for two miles, how big of an area does that cell tower cover? Now, this might be stretching people. I know we, math and algebra wasn't everybody's favorite subject. It was mine. I love I love word problems when I was a kid. But remember, what's the area of a circle? If if a cell tower goes can extend out two miles, that means its radius is two. And remember pi r square from high school? Right. You thought you never used pi. Juries I talk to, I always tell them, I bet you never thought you would ever use pi r square. We're well, going to get to use it today. The cell tower goes out for two miles. That's r. So r squared is four, and pi is about three. Three times four is twelve. So a cell tower covers 12 square miles. All I can do as an expert, as an expert, I can tell you that this phone was located near this cell tower in downtown Denver, but somewhere within 12 square miles. I absolutely cannot tell you, I cannot tell you that this phone was at the scene of the crime. Right. So that's... And and if your suspect, his alibi is... I was home four blocks away in bed asleep at the time of the crime. That's, you know, and my wife used my phone or something. That's also consistent with the same cell tower, right? So it doesn't prove... Exactly. I wish you were on my jury. You're perfect. That's exactly right. And uh, frankly, a lot of the crimes I deal with occur in a neighborhood where the crime has occurred and the suspect lives within blocks of the crime, also works within blocks of the crime. 12 square miles is a big area. Most of us never wander out of that 12 square miles all day unless we're commuting to work far away. Right. So this is the, you know, this is the biggest problem we see in, in court today that people take cell phone evidence that's not as specific as they're trying to make it out to be. And generalize. So I see this all the time that someone was connected to a cell tower that's 12 square miles. Therefore, he was at the scene of the crime. And a jury believes that. You know, I mean, if you tell a jury as a prosecutor, look, if you were at the scene of the crime, you would have used this cell tower in downtown Denver. 
and the suspect at 6 o'clock made a phone call and received three texts that used this cell tower. Therefore, he was at the scene of the crime. That's not correct. But uh, that's in, in that kind of case, that's what I would testify. I still don't know. Maybe he, the person was at the scene of the crime. What we find most of the time is that the police completely misinterpret cell phone evidence, and they've selected the wrong cell tower. Uh, and this happens all the time where I'll look at evidence and they'll say, my, my, uh, they're saying my uh, client was at the scene of the crime. And I find that at, um, six o'clock, their client was actually connected to a different cell tower that would completely exclude them from being at the scene of the crime. Cause you can imagine if you're going to, you know, what cell phone evidence is really good for is excluding you from an area. It's time for a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to the Karasan Crime Podcast Series. I'm Beth Karras, and I'm talking to Ben Levitan, a cell phone expert. Among the things we're talking about is the use and misuse of cell phone data in the courtroom. Let me ask you this, Ben. Is there any chance that you can be, say, in the area of the crime scene in that one cell tower, cell tower range one? No. Your records can show you in cell tower range one when you were really in cell tower two because the call bounced over because two was full and it bounced over to one, which is what I was, I believed could occur. That is one of the biggest myths around that cell towers. <laughs> okay, remember again, let's go back to basics. A cell tower is a radio station. It, ra- it, it provides a coverage area that's only a radio station of two miles wide. Okay? If that cell tower turns off, you've got one big dead zone. That's it. Cell, t- you know, it's like, it's like, uh, like as if you're, you know, living in, uh, Redondo Beach, California, and you're list- and your radio station is, goes down. Oh, all of a sudden I can hear, uh, radio stations that are in, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. It does not happen. I swear, Ben, I swear I heard an expert say that at a trial once, say you can't really tell from with the cell phone data because a call could be within the jurisdiction of this cell tower, but because it's full, it bounces to another one. I swear I I didn't, this didn't come out of thin air in my head. No, I've heard that too, and it's completely wrong. And I've, I've, uh, I've, this is not that difficult. Every cell tower covers one area, covers one specific area. And then once you leave that area, hopefully there's a second cell tower that covers that area. The records are correct. If it says you were connected to a cell tower in a specific area, you were within the vicinity of that cell tower. Then let me ask you about the trial that uh, you were on, Nancy Grace, recently to talk about a case, uh, Adnan Syed out of Baltimore. And and you had shared with me um, some analysis you had done. I had thought, I had always flip-flopped when I listened to the Serial podcast series. I flip-flopped because I thought, oh, you know, for for me, it was pretty bad for Adnan Syed that his cell phone was pinging in that cell tower area of Leakin Park, where the body was recovered, found, right? And then after the, or sometime after the podcast series, the um, expert in, in the cell phone, who was the state's expert, he, he recanted because he said, oh, there was a fax page that was, I was never shown, and the fax page had a little footnote that said that something about the reliability of the information. And so I thought, wow, if the cell phone expert's, testimony is no longer good, that's what kind of made me think Adnan Sayed probably did this. What do you you say to that? Okay, everybody has been talking about the fact sheet saying that incoming cell towers are not reliable. This is a complete red herring. It's a complete red herring. The facts are is I was given the cell phone evidence from this case, and I was asked to evaluate it. 
and nobody had done a proper evaluation of the cell phone data. I had to start from ground zero. Who asked you to evaluate uh, it? Actually, MSNBC oh. told, had called me. A reporter from MSNBC had called me and said, have you heard of the Serial Podcast? I said, no, I haven't. They said, uh, we'd like a cell phone expert to look at it. And I said, well, this sounds like something fun. <laughs> and so I listened to the podcast, and I said, yeah, I'd be happy to look at this. And they sent me the evidence that was used in trial. And let me tell you the the first mistake they made. Okay, I told you a couple of minutes ago that the cell phone companies are constantly upgrading their networks and making changes. People call in every day saying, hey, I got a dead spot here on Michigan Avenue. Every time I walk out of my office, I lose my call. Can you guys come fix it? So they're constantly making adjustments. So when you get when you get the phone bills from a phone company like they did in this case, and you look at um, you look at the where the the cell towers are located, you have to evaluate it on that day. In fact, the day that uh, this crime occurred is when you have to evaluate the cell phones. What the expert did in this case is they waited 10 months before they started their evaluation of the cell phone evidence in this case. By that time, AT&T had already upgraded from a 2G network to a 3G network. They were evaluating this case on a network that did not exist at the time of the crime. It was completely irrelevant. So that was one of the first mistakes they made. And when you say they, the that's the minute. state's expert. You're talking about the state's expert. The state's expert, okay. yeah, okay. and the state. Yeah, and you've got to give these people a little bit of credit because this happened in 1999. Right. This is probably one of the first times cell phone evidence ever came into a courtroom. And so I don't, you know, I think they were doing the best they could mm -hmm. with what they had, but they didn't have anything. Okay. What was the next mistake? Okay. So, so um, the next mistake they made is that uh, people have been looking at, uh, I evaluated the records. All the records that are being used to evaluate this case are accurate. There are no mistakes. Um, and all the records are reliable. And, you know, people are grasping onto things like uh, uh, these are basically... When you open, when you sign up for a website, you see that uh, disclaimer. <laughs> That's you, the uh, you always see these disclaimers. though, when you log onto a website, that is saying, "Hey, we take no responsibility for anything on this." That was just AT and T's disclaimer Got it. Uh, that people have read way too much into. The records I evaluated were accurate, but I can tell you that when they went into the trial the first time. They had no idea where the cell towers were actually located. I had to have my people go determine the actual location of these cell towers. Because like I said, the phone records will say the date and time of the call, the parties to the call, the duration of the call, and the cell tower used. And that cell tower used is a code, a code number. And then... uh when I looked at the code sheet that told you what the location of that cell tower was, it was completely inaccurate. It, it didn't have good... So people really didn't know even know where the cell towers were. So you had to go back in time so, and figure out where it was in February 1999? Exactly. I mean, uh, there was uh, notations like cell tower number 74 is on the north face of the, the Barclay Bank building. And I had to go back and oh, I had to have some, one, you know, one of my people go find out where the Barclay Bank building was and it, did they have a cell tower? And if they did, where was that located? So I don't even know what they went into court with. But, uh, like I said, when I evaluated this, they made some assumptions that were just incorrect. Just like I said, the cell, there's a cell tower that covers Leakin Park, which is what the big story is about. Now, remember, how many times have I said already in this podcast, a cell tower covers a very, very large area. People keep saying that uh, the phone was in Leakin Park. I cannot tell you that with certainty. I can tell you that this phone 
was in an area that's that does include Lincoln Park. It also includes Jay's grandmother's house, and it also includes the high the the Beltway around Baltimore. So I can't tell you as an expert where that phone was actually located, but I cannot exclude that phone from being in Lincoln Park, and I can't exclude that phone from being at Jay's grandmother's house or a car so driving was, around the Beltway, or a car. Yeah, and I. Uh, I I think I'm the first person who actually mapped the movements of that phone through the entire day. Uh, like, there's a lot of discussion about whether the phone was at the high school or was it at Best Buy. Well, as it turns out, the cell tower that covers the high school also covers Best Buy. So there's no expert who could have told you whether the phone was actually at Best Buy or at school or somewhere between those two places. Because there was one cell tower that covered all that. There's a lot of people who made specific statements about the location and movements of this phone who didn't know what they were talking about. You said when the state and their expert evaluated um, the telephone, this is Adnan Syed's phone, I, um, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't start the evaluation for 10 months and that AT&T had upgraded the system. When, That's correct. From two G to three G, you said okay. I'm, um, That's correct. Yeah, we but, went from two G to three G at the time. How, yeah. So, how did that affect their analysis? And did you go back and look at the old way to make sure you were accurate, or or am I misunderstanding well, this? No, you're, you're you're perfectly understanding it. Um, let me tell you what they did. Um, like I said, a cell tower is like a radio station, and what they did is they they went out and they tried to map what the coverage area of the cell tower was. It would be kind of like you trying to find out what's the coverage area of your favorite radio station. You drive out in one direction till you lose your radio station. You okay, well, the radio station gets to like 10 miles outside of town, east of town, and then driving the other way and and going 10 miles west of town and go, oh, I'm losing the radio. They tried to, What they were trying to do is say, if Saeed's phone was connected to this cell tower, where could he possibly have been? So they, they did what they call a drive test, where they drove all around trying to find out where the, how big an area that cell tower covered, and they drew a map. The problem is they drew that map on a, a new cell tower, it had gone from a 2G cell tower to a 3G cell tower. So the evidence that they were bringing in was completely inaccurate. Yeah. It had to do with it had to do with the coverage of a cell tower 10 months after the crime was committed. And, and what I did is I I knew what the coverage area of a 2G cell tower was and I drew it. Got it. So I assume a, a 3G cell tower is going to be bigger, a wider area. Yes, and and, and of course the other thing is uh what um, what cell phone companies do is say you're in an area with just one cell tower, and all of a sudden there's so many there's a lot of people moving into that area. They'll take that one tower and they'll split it up into four or five cell towers that are each smaller. And so the the what we call the map or the RF plan is constantly changing. So in ten months the evidence did not match what actually happened on the night of the on the night of the murder so what completely you, different what have you done with the with your analysis is it in the hands of the prosecution or the defense or simply uh, MSNBC well MSNBC had looked at it Nancy Grace has also looked at this and uh the and when i was doing several uh different uh, media shows. I've done several stories about this serial podcast. I've always given away my analysis uh, to people, and that includes uh, Saeed's new lawyer, and it also includes um, who knows where my pre- who knows yeah. where it's gotten to now. But well, my that, presentations have been widespread. Yeah, and that's what you sent me too, right? That multiple page. That's document. correct. It, 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 can I put it on my website for the members yeah, to see? You're, you're, Okay. I'm sure you can do that. Yeah, okay, I, with I'll your give permission. you my permission to do that. Yeah, yeah you've right. got my permission to do that. What it'll show you is step by step where that phone was on on the day of the crime. And you know, you got to remember that I, I as an expert, I'm not working for the prosecution. I'm not working for the defense. 
And um, if I was called to court by either side, this is the presentation I would probably bring in. Uh, and I would be explaining exactly, you know, what my findings are. My findings are fairly objective. So what you're, I mean, both sides can use it and just argue their points from it. Like I say, well, we can't, it, it probably more helpful for the state, though, because you say, well, it doesn't exclude them. That's right. Well. I mean, uh, I, I think what, what you'll see in that presentation, what your listeners will see in that presentation, is an objective analysis of where the phone could have been that day, where it moved. Um, it was in the area of Leakin Park. It was in the area of uh, the high school in Best Buy. It was also in the vicinity of the friend that they call Kathy. And I also show the times when the phone moved between uh, those different areas. So uh, these are just objective facts. And it's it's really not my interest as to whether it makes Saeed guilty or not guilty. Right, right. And, you know, that's the same with any expert. Any expert you see uh, in a courtroom, their job is to be completely objective and present the facts. And that's it. So I appreciate that you're going to let me share that with um, with the members of um, my website. I think they'll enjoy looking at your analysis. Can you discuss any other cases that you were a part of that may have been more, um, I don't know, more black and white in terms of uh, excluding oh. a person? Because this one doesn't really, it doesn't exclude Anan Syed. Well, like I said, um, the other part I didn't tell you is uh, not only can I tell you if someone was, uh, what cell site someone was near. I can also tell you uh, if they were north of the cell towers, west of the cell tower, south of the cell tower. If you look at a really? cell tower, that's, you, that's yeah, well, if you look up at a cell tower, now, all your listeners are going to remember this show, because every time they look up at a cell tower, they're going to see a triangle up there. What that is is three different sets of radios. And uh, one set of radio essentially points, points north, one points southwest, uh, southeast, and one points uh, southwest. So in the phone records, it'll actually tell you what cell tower somebody used, and it'll also tell you which side of that cell tower they use. So actually, when I told you that a cell tower covers 12 square miles, that's accurate. But I can divide that in three in most cases and cut it down to four to four square miles, and I can tell you if someone was south, you know, where they were. And you'll, look, you'll see that when you look up at a, a cell tower, you go, ah, if I make a phone call right now, I'm going to use this cell tower, and I'm going to be using the side of the cell tower that's facing me. So, so you're, what you're I've like cutting added, a pie into thirds, right? You're cutting a pie into exactly. thirds. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I've had several murder I had one case, which was a capital murder case, where a lady was accused of a murder, and sure enough, she was connected to one specific cell tower. What the police and the investigators did not understand is that the information also told them, in this case, uh, which side of the cell tower this lady was connected to. The murder happened north of the cell tower, so if, you, if she was at the scene of the crime, her phone would have shown that she had used this specific cell tower and used the north side of it. Her phone records actually show that she was using the southeast side of the cell tower. So, therefore, I could say she was excluded from being at the crime scene at the time, which was a fantastic uh, piece of news for her. I could, and and um, God, I could go on all day well, with dozens of Wait a second. Wait a cases. second. Wait a second. When you're – okay. Uh, when when you're right. looking at the cell phone use and you're able to say she was southeast, not in the north side of the cell tower, is that cell phone use or is that simply the phone is on so it pings? Or did she have to yeah. make or receive a call? Or is it a GPS device? Generally, yeah. for historical analysis of cell phones, which is what we're talking about, what happened in the past, you... You have to rely on the records where someone made a call, received a call, or sent or received a text message. That's the only time it's recorded. So you're absolutely right. If if there's no call made, there's no evidence of where you're located. So in the case... But, okay, go ahead. Well, but, but the case is that most people are so obsessed with their phone 
that I can follow them all around town all day because they're constantly sending and receiving texts yeah, and right. making phone calls. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> it's real. And believe me, one thing, I, if, uh, sometimes I, uh, I'm involved in a case that starts off because a drug deal went bad and people scattered. I've had a case where 27 people scattered in 27 different directions, and they all got on the phone as they were driving away, <laughs> and I was able to track every one of them to where they were. Wow. And, and um, But he, here's the punchline to that whole story. The suspect was actually a guy who was driving towards the crime scene and was late. So I was able to show, because uh, my biggest interest was, uh, the you know the client that I was working for, I pulled his cell phone records, and I went and told the attorney, "Look, it appears that he's driving towards the scene of the crime, and ten minutes before the uh, crime occurred, he's eighteen miles away. Five minutes before the crime scene, he's ten miles away. I don't believe he would have gotten to the crime scene in time to commit the crime. He was the only one driving towards the scene." Everybody. So I think the police would have taken my evidence of the 27 people who were going in the other direction and looked at them. Seems to make sense. Um, when you are looking at cell phone records, how, how are you getting them? Do you have some special way because of who you are, or do you have to get them by subpoena? And, you know, the attorneys have to give them. Oh, to I'm, I'm nobody. Your cell phone records are strictly protected by the phone company. When I work for cell phone companies, uh, I did everything, or my I, on behalf of my company, I did everything to make sure that cell phone evidence uh, was yours, was private. Your location wouldn't be found out unless you knew it. I've worked on dozens of projects where we uh, we argued with law enforcement that you know this is what we will give you, this is what we won't give you. In order to get cell phone records, you have to have a court case. You have to have a subpoena signed by a judge that authorizes you to obtain those cell phone records, and you have to have a good reason to get them. So if I'm uh, if I'm investigating a uh, crime and I want to prove that my defendant, my client, was not at the scene of the crime, he's already been charged with a case. I asked the lawyer uh, if he would subpoena. He would ask the judge to uh, to write a subpoena for me to obtain the cell phone records. Once a judge does that, the lawyer sent those phone records, and then they're sent to me for analysis. Uh, in Saeed's case, I don't know why, but the phone records have become public information. But in order to get those records, as you can tell, a subpoena had to be written for those records. Right. At some point, right. Now, um, you've been talking almost an hour. I was going to get... Well, let me get... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, let me give you that other, other, uh, the other clear cut case which we had talked about before. There was a case, uh, Ohio versus Soleil, very similar to the Said case. In this case, it's again, it's a young Muslim kid at the, uh, and there's a group of kids at the, at Ohio State University. It's the day before school. They all go out together to a bar. And at midnight, one of the girls in the group walks out to uh, get a cigarette, smoke a cigarette, and she disappears. Her body is found a month later, uh, 20 miles away at Hoover Reservoir. And so the police naturally look at the group of kids who went to the uh, party the day before school started at Ohio State, and they pull all their cell phone records, and they decide that this one Muslim kid named Adam Soleil was near the uh, Hoover Reservoir on the night of the uh, crime, and therefore he was the murderer. And they arrest him. Well, I get his cell phone records, and I show, without a doubt, that the police selected the wrong cell tower. The cell tower they selected was not near the scene of the crime. It was actually more towards uh, the university where he said he was. In fact, he said he had gone to get a pizza at a pizza parlor, and the cell phone evidence is actually consistent with that. But here's the real thing. Here's the real interesting part. I also asked for the victim's cell phone records. Now, I got the victim's cell phone records, and what I, what was really odd is this, this woman was from Mansfield, Ohio. She's going to Ohio State University, 
and her cell phone number is from Florida. Okay, well, that's curious. Who knows why? All right, so I, I just took that. So then I look at her cell phone records, I, and I show that over the past four months, she has dialed 911 eight times. Oh, she's getting why beat up by not, a boyfriend. Some, some boyfriend's beating her up. Or something like that. that. So he could be a suspect. The next thing I find out is I look at the night of the uh, uh, night of the crime. She has several calls going to Florida and to L.A. on the night of the crime before midnight. Okay, well, I think I'd want to talk to those people. But then the next thing I see is her phone the next day, the day after she's murdered. Her phone is in Miami, Florida. What? What? So her killer, right. her killer took the phone and got on a plane. Well, apparently she had some sort of relationship with some guy in uh, Miami, Florida. Here's where it gets even better. Four days later, after the murder... Someone walks into the phone store, the T-Mobile store, turns in her phone and says, I'm not going to need this phone anymore. Where's, where's the store? Where? In in, in, in Florida. Florida. In, in Miami, Florida. So the phone has gotten from Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, all the way down to Miami, Florida, and someone's turned it in for a credit. You would think that someone would look at that. I can't believe. So anyway, I, was, I can't believe you solved this. Okay, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I certainly did. So you know, I was kind of proud of myself. I went. I had a presentation with all the attorneys and the prosecutors, and I said, "Here it is." I even had a picture of the guy who turned in the phone. I knew who he was. Was this okay, so was we, this post conviction? Was this like there had been a trial or a pre-trial? No, this, this is pre-trial. Okay, this is pre-trial. So I go to court. And I think we're going to walk out of here. So anyway, uh, I go to testify in this case. And the prosecutor demands that I do my entire presentation outside the view of the jury. So I do this whole presentation. I say, look, um, this is Adam Saleh's phone is shown to be in the area of this pizza parlor. He was never in the area of the dam, which is 20 miles away. Further, the victim's phone is in the area of the bar before midnight, and then the next day appears in Miami. I don't know if that means the killer took the phone and brought it to Miami, or I don't know if that means she went to Miami, because her body was not found for a month. So there is a possibility that she flew to Miami on her own, then came home and was killed. It doesn't matter. What does matter is Adam Soleil was not the person who killed her. And as a matter of fact, his, the evidence shows where he was the entire weekend. Her phone shows that she went to Miami. So someone should have asked this question. Well, I go through my whole presentation in front of just the judge, and the prosecutor objects to me bringing in the victim's cell phone records. And he bans me from bringing that stuff in. He forbids me from bringing it in. On what grounds? On the fact that, uh, and now you're the lawyer. What he said was that the prosecutor in his case in chief did not introduce the victim's cell phone records. Therefore, I cannot introduce the cell phone's victim's records. So uh, I'm told to, the court is dismissed for the day. I'm told to go home. So what I do is I go back to my hotel and I go, well, this is not a problem. I have cell phone evidence that shows that he was uh, near the police, uh, near the pizza place. But the, uh, but the, uh, you know, and, but the uh, lawyer or the prosecutor insists that he was at the lake. I said, okay, well, let's say he was at the lake. At the, let's say he was at the lake at the time of the crime. Let me, let me, because uh, otherwise we're arguing, you know, both of us are arguing, well, that cell tower's in downtown Columbus, and the uh, prosecutor would just keep arguing, no, that cell tower is out by Hoover Reservoir. I said, okay, well, let me concede it to him that the phone was out by, uh, that the cell tower was attached to a uh, cell tower near Hoover Reservoir. The next call he makes is 15 minutes later from 
the pizza parlor, and there's no dispute to that. So I said, so what I said in my testimony the next day was, look, they're trying to tell you that this call was placed from the area of Hoover Reservoir. I'm telling you it's wrong, and here's why they're wrong. If he had made a call from the reservoir and had to drive to the pizza parlor where he was shown to be 15 minutes later, he would have had to drive 115 miles an hour the whole way. So, therefore, he could not have been there. Seems pretty solid. I walked out and went home. I was happy. I found out the next day he was convicted, and he's in jail. When was this? 2001. Uh, it was also not good to be a Muslim in 2001, if you remember. Yeah. Um, How do you spell his last name? S-A-L-E-H? S-A-L-E-H, Adam Slay. Here's what happened after I left. After I left, a jailhouse snitch, a, a kid who had been convicted to 116 years in jail, testified. He said he was in the holding cell with Adam Slay. Um the night he was arrested, and then Adam Slate confessed to him that he choked her to death outside of the bar in Columbus, put her in his trunk, and then drove her up to the dam. That guy uh, had his 116-year sentence, I understand, uh, either thrown out or reduced severely. He testified at the trial? He was another witness at the trial? Yep, he's, he was the rebuttal witness after I testified. Where so in Ohio? Finish. What was city? Columbus, Ohio. Okay. And I do get a call from, and it did go to appeal. The The attorney who did this, this was his first murder case ever. And let me tell you how bad this got. Um, the attorney who took this case, he was just a guy who, his parents ran a kind of convenience store, kind of like a 7-Eleven place where you can go in and buy a pack of cigarettes. This lawyer came in every day to buy a pack of cigarettes, and when Adam was uh, arrested, they were talking to the lawyer and telling him the whole story, and he volunteered to take the case. What's, uh, his name was Watson, Attorney Watson. He clearly did not this was his first murder case ever. He clearly didn't have the capability to take a case like this. Uh, and I don't blame it all on him, but the fact is that Adam did get convicted. And there was an appeal. And in the appeal, the appellate court said the court had the right to bar cell phone evidence that was not introduced in the case in chief. So... Wow. I'd like to and the Innocence that Pro- yeah, every, yeah, every year I get a call from the Ohio Innocence Project, and I send them my presentation and talk to them. So fascinating. But that's been going since. Yeah, well, it really is. Poor you, kid. Mr. Levitan, have been so gracious and generous with your time. We've been talking for over an hour, and every single minute has been fascinating to me, and I hope it has been to everyone who is listening. So I want to thank you for joining me today. Uh, and I well, look thank you for having me on. Let's I, do this again when yeah, some, when when, when you have cell phone evidence that comes up. Let me know. I'll help you out. And thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of the Karis on Crime podcast series. I'm Beth Karis. You know, I welcome your feedback. So feel free to post your questions or comments to me on Twitter. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karis and at Karis on Crime. Post them in the forum, on the website Karis on Crime, or on Facebook under my name, Beth Karis. Until the next time, be well.